Welcome to the Clifford Chance podcast, and I'm delighted today to welcome Sir Dermot Turing. He is an alumnus of Clifford Chance, an ex-partner of mine, um, and in this capacity, he's going to talk about a successful life after the law. Yes, there is such a thing. <laughs> Dermot's famous uncle, Sir Alan Turing, um, has provided Dermot with um, all sorts of opportunities. He's currently a trustee of Bletchley Park and of the Turing Trust, and he's the Bletchley Park Visiting Fellow at Kellogg College, Oxford. And he does though, continue his interest in the financial world. However, it's not his illustrious uncle that I want to talk about first today, but in fact Dermot's new book, X, Y and Z, the real story of how Enigma was broken which tells how French, British and Polish secret services came together to unravel the most important secret of World War II and what became of the people involved. And for my money, it's a great um, exemplar for people who are asking themselves, what is the role of European cooperation today? Because it's a marvellous example of that. And I don't want to say any more about it, Dermot, save to turn to you and ask you to give a little um, description of what the book is about and what made you write it. Well, I think probably most people in the UK uh, and indeed uh, many people elsewhere will uh, think of Bletchley Park and Alan Turing very much in terms of the uh, German Enigma cipher machine and the amazing success that Bletchley Park had during World War Two in being able to decipher secret German messages. Um, and, uh, you know, that, I mean, that is an amazing success story and people are, are, are right to think of that. But there's a tendency to go on from that and assume that somehow some uh, uh, piece of genius um, sort of suddenly came upon Alan Turing sort of in the middle of the night at some point and then suddenly he was able to invent this amazing machine called the bomb which uh, was designed to find the settings on the Enigma machine and that sort of somehow came out of the ether out of nowhere and um, you know we should put that down to Alan Turing's genius. Um, it's probably not my place to um, try and say that Alan Turing was not a genius but on the other hand, uh, he got there by taking the last step um, from uh, a set of other steps that had been taken by other people in other countries, and uh, Bletchley Park has therefore got a huge debt to um, those who came before them, and my new book is essentially about that pre-story. Where did the success uh of the bomb at Bletchley Park come from and uh, to whom uh, does it owe thanks for, for being able to be as successful as it was during World War II. Um, let, me, let me just explain a little bit about that. If you go to the National Archives uh, in the UK, there's a document in there which is dated from 1938, so just about a year before the war began, and the British are asking the French if they could explain to them how the Enigma machine worked. And that's a pretty astonishing piece of ignorance when you think that in less than a year's time they were going to be at war with Germany. They didn't know that at the time, of course. But within less than a year's time, they were not only at war with Germany, but they had also got to the stage where Alan Turing was able to describe his concept of an enigma-busting machine to the engineers who were going to build it for him. So we went from 
not exactly zero knowledge, but a very, very low state of knowledge about the machine itself to a technique which became, in some people's ideas, a, a war-winning weapon in less than 12 months. So how did that happen? And, and that's really the question that my book sets out to answer. Now, I've heard you talk about your book before. It was a great privilege and honour. And the first thing I recalled when I realised I was going to have the pleasure of talking to you today was the remarkable linguistic and mathematical combination which some of the Polish people involved in this story um, brought to bear. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, well, the Poles have been fighting for their national existence ever since the end of World War One because their country didn't exist before World War One. It had been swallowed up by the three... Uh, empires on its borders um, and so they were an emerging nation in 1919 they had to fight for their existence in a war that broke out almost immediately with the uh, Soviet Union and they won that war uh, in to a great deal um, because they had actually been able to break Russian codes during during that during that conflict and so code breaking had assumed a very much a very significant um, uh, place in the thinking of Polish military intelligence. So they were very keen to build up their code-breaking ca capacity, even in the peacetime that followed. And in particular, they realised when they started observing that ciphered messages were being enciphered using mechanical means rather than the old hand squared paper and pencil techniques that have been used in the past they realize that um, if you're using a cipher machine that's going to be uh, something that involves uh, mathematical techniques and so they started hiring mathematicians to attend a code breaking course uh, as early as the late 1920s so about 1928 they had the idea 1929 they ran their first code breaking course for mathematicians and this was a remarkable thing. The British didn't start hiring mathematicians for their code-breaking uh, uh, institution until 10 years later. So they were really, really ahead of the game. And then they were also ahead of the game because one of the consequences of Poland being partitioned before World War One was that some Polish people had grown up in uh, German-speaking part of their occupied country and so they'd had to speak German at school even though they spoke Polish at home. So these were bilingual kids who were also doing maths degrees. Um, so you've got a perfect combination there where you've got mathematicians which is the right skill sets we need for the modern style of code breaking plus the right linguistic combination so they could actually understand um, the material that they were breaking and also the mindset of the people who were sending the messages. So um, this this was a this was a great combination, and it meant that um, by the early 1930s, the Poles were actually able to get cracking on the Enigma problem, uh, which I mean, again, I mean, this was years and years ahead of the um, the French and the British, who who were still sort of struggling with what the machine was at that stage. Now, did you tell me, or have I imagined, a rather entertaining story about how only the Poles could talk to the French or only the Poles could talk <laughs> to the British because the French and the British couldn't talk, which feels as if it's got a long finger into history. <laughs> uh, yes, well, you haven't misremembered. The, the, this was 
towards the end of the 1930s, when the Poles, the French and the British started to work together on the Enigma problem, they began to have um, trilateral conferences about this. And there the language barrier was uh, a bit of a barrier. Um, the British didn't speak any Polish and the French didn't speak any Polish. And that, I'm afraid, hasn't really changed uh, even um, 80 years further on. Um, the Poles didn't speak any English and didn't speak much French. Um, the French didn't speak any English. The British did speak some French. In fact, the British spoke quite good French. Um, and so that didn't really leave a lot for them, sort of left over for them to communicate with each other in. Um, and so the answer was, well, they were all monitoring Germany like crazy and they all spoke German so the conferences took place in German which was the language of their enemy which is a quite remarkable thing. So the Germans wouldn't yeah. even have to have broken <laughs> no, the no, linguistic no. code if the Germans to have been listening, If the Germans had been listening this would have been a problem. <laughs> <laughs> and what would the Germans have heard had they been listening? Well what we need to do is to turn the clock back slightly because in the early 1930s the Polish mathematicians that I was talking about earlier had started working on the Enigma machine problem. And by really quite an astonishing feat of pure mathematical analysis, had worked out what the secret internal wiring in the Enigma machine was. So, Dermot, can you just tell us what the Enigma thing was before we get into how they worked out how it worked? Perhaps I need to begin by... Um, talking about the Enigma machine I expect most people know this but it's a electromechanical encipherment machine it looks a little bit like an old-fashioned typewriter uh, but instead of uh, typewritten text coming out when you press a key on the Enigma machine it lights up a light bulb um, which will uh, be referable to a particular letter of the alphabet but it's not the same one that you pressed so the electrical circuitry inside the machine changes one letter into another. So therefore it's producing a cipher. What makes it remarkable is that each time you press a key, the wiring changes because there are rotors in the machine that rotate uh, every time the key, a key is pressed. And so the nature of the cipher changes every single time uh, you key in another letter. And that is what is its key security device because obviously you can't predict what the next letter is going to be so if i pressed the a key and i got q the next time i press the a key i'm probably not going to get q because the wiring inside the machine has changed so the first challenge for the polish code breakers was to work out what that wiring was and how it changed every time you pressed a key so they needed to find out what the wiring inside the machine was they needed to find out what the wiring inside the moving parts of the machine the rotors inside the machine were and then they might be able to start figuring out what the secret messages contained um, but of course they weren't going to be able to go off and steal or buy a machine so what they did was they approached the problem mathematically and one of the Polish mathematicians, a guy called Marian Riewski, figured out that you could reduce the workings of the Enigma machine to a set of equations. And he then did this astonishing thing where he actually solved the equations. This is the most astonishing piece of mathematical analysis. I mean, it really is quite, quite phenomenal. Um, and that meant that without 
actually having clapped eyes on a German armed forces Enigma machine, he was able to reconstruct the interior wiring of it uh, in 1932. And then they could actually get cracking and find out um, how to read the secret messages. Now, what runs through your story always is nobility and a lack of recognition of the um, gifts, really, that these Polish gentlemen gave to um, their allies. I was thinking in particular that maybe nowadays one would fear that they would go straight off and sell it directly to the enemy and make some money, but that was not what the Poles did. Could you fill us in on actually how it was that they managed to um, start to benefit their allies, the French and the English, because some of that involves some very colourful characters, as I recall. The big challenge for any country in Europe in the 1930s was knowing who was going to be on whose side uh, if a conflict broke out. And there was lots of debates going on as to who the belligerents were going to be. And lots of people thought that uh, the number one enemy was Soviet Russia. Uh, lots of other people thought that the number one enemy was going to be Nazi Germany, and maybe they were both right. Um, uh, some countries like Britain were trying very hard to be neutral, and therefore nobody particularly wanted to share their secrets with the British. Um, the French didn't trust the Poles because the Poles were doing uh, non-aggression alliances with the Germans and that threatened the French and so forth. So the, it was a very febrile, very difficult time, not the kind of atmosphere in which you would expect anyone to be sharing uh, their secrets with anybody else. The French thought they had a deal with the Poles whereby, because the French had supplied some secret documents, which is where the interesting characters in the story come in. They'd supplied some secret documents to the Poles, which had helped Marian Rievsky with his mathematical analysis. They thought that the quid pro quo for that was that the Poles would actually share any breakthroughs they made on the Enigma problem with the French. But the Poles really didn't want to share any breakthroughs with the French because they feared that the French were going to change sides any day. And this state of affairs carried on right through until um, really only a few weeks before World War II broke out. But by that stage, the Poles knew they were under serious threat from Germany. It was really, really important to bring the British and the French into a much closer alliance. And so it, the decision was taken right at the top of uh, the Polish armed forces that they would reveal the, what they knew about the Enigma, which was basically everything, and certainly answered all the questions that the French and the British had got about the Enigma machine and how to read the secret messages. So they would trade this secret in return for more extensive military cooperation. And they did that in the third week of July. 1939, so seriously only five weeks before um, World War II actually broke out. And that was miraculous because it was that sharing of intelligence that enabled Bletchley Park to get cracking immediately and to get started on the uh, development of a new super machine to break the Enigma cipher.
So your story reminds me really of how crucial days can be during historic, uh, momentous historic yeah. periods. And um, can you tell me what happened to the Poles after they'd decided to make this enormous sacrifice and give away their big secret? Were they well rewarded? Um, did the Germans get them? Could they escape? Well, okay, so the the Polish codebreakers did actually get rewarded, curiously enough, by their own side. I mean, the, the mathematicians got financial... <clears throat> they got financial um, rewards from, from the Polish military. Um, but, of course, what happened to Poland in 1939 was it was overrun not just by the Germans, but also they were invaded by Soviet Russia as well. So by... The uh, third week of September, Poland once again didn't exist. Um, it had had to capitulate. The Polish codebreakers um, were ordered to uh, flee the country, and um, so they escaped with their secret intact, they hoped, um, having burnt all their documents and machinery and, and so forth um, on the way out. And they uh, found their way after lots of travails and tribulations, they found their way to Paris um, and they continued working with their French allies who they'd been speaking to for all the years and including in these three country conferences I was talking about. Uh, and the French were obviously still cooperating very closely with the British at the time. And so what happened... Um, during the period that the British call the Phony War, uh, up until the uh, invasion of France in 1940, uh, the Poles were working in France for the French, but in close alliance with the British. So the, despite the fact that Poland had been overrun, they were still effectively fighting the co-breaking war um, uh, on the same side. Well, that was great because <coughs> France was safe, wasn't it? Well, it was safe until until the Germans <laughs> decided to invade France, um, and uh, and then the Poles oh, uh, and indeed the French had to uh, um, flee the Germans for a second time, um, and then something very curious happens that um, after the capitulation of France, the armistice between France and Germany in nineteen forty, the uh, French liaison officer, um, Gustave Bertrand, who was the uh, head of the secret department that was responsible for Enigma uh, in French military intelligence, he had not only whisked his precious Polish codebreakers out of the country so that they were safe from uh, the Germans, he took them by plane to French North Africa, but then, after a couple of months, he managed to wangle his way back into favour with the Vichy government in France and persuade them to allow him to set up a new co-breaking unit in deep in the south of France, in some rural you know, cut-off uh, chateau. And he brought the Poles back to, with the consent of Polish military, by the way, and so it wasn't it wasn't devious this thing, but uh, to work for him, continuing the fight against Germany, even though, um, as we all know, the Vichy government was uh, trying to get very close to um, uh, Germany. The evolution of how the Vichy government um, changed its way that it thought about 
its relationship with Germany uh, is a huge study in its own right and it's very complex. But I think you, the simple story is that Germany was not at peace with France. There was just an armistice. There was no peace treaty. So the war was still technically in place between Vichy France and Germany. So although it might have been a breach of the armistice deal um, to have a code-breaking unit um, looking at German codes during the period of the Vichy government, from Vichy's perspective, it wasn't um, you know, completely against the national interest. So that's where they they carried on the poles carried on uh, work despite the fall of france and then the germans invaded the south of france and then it became too hot to stay there and so they had to escape again some of them got arrested some of them got captured by the germans uh, some of them escaped over the pyrenees into spain and eventually made it to britain um, but it was a pretty hair-raising uh, few months that that period after after the occupation of the so-called free zone of France. It makes you realise that life in a law firm is really very prosaic. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, I'm, I'm very happy not to have had to live through any of these times, actually. <laughs> and meanwhile, what was um, Sir Alan and Enigma doing in the UK? Just give us a sense of how the British are now contributing to the effort. Well, I think... So... With the priceless gift of this uh, intelligence that the Poles had shared just before the outbreak of war, the British now understood how the Enigma machine worked, what its internal wiring was, and the Poles also shared their code-breaking techniques. So it's not just a matter of how the machine is wired, it's a matter of how it's set up every day. There's 150 million, million, million ways that the Enigma machine can be set up every day on every network, and if you don't know which of those settings is being used, you'll never be able to read a secret message. So the setting, the techniques for finding the settings were just as valuable as the information about the wiring. And so Alan Turing's machine, which was designed to help the British work out what the settings were, was basically designed almost immediately after this famous meeting took place. Uh, and as I said, it was in the hands of the engineers to try and turn his ideas into hardware by Christmas of 1939. Prototype got delivered to Bletchley Park in the spring of 1940. It didn't work very well, but by the time of the fall of France, a better design was uh, being worked on by the engineers and was delivered to Bletchley Park just in time for the Battle of Britain. And that's when the British started to read Enigma messages in earnest. It was really just in time. It was by the skin of our teeth that the uh, uh, the machine was actually able to you know, be operational just about in time when the British found themselves in serious combat. And can you tell us any of the things that they read? Any significant messages? Yeah, it's sometimes a bit difficult to figure out what was attributable to Enigma and what was not because Bletchley Park was about us a whole load more than just in reading Enigma messages there were all sorts of codes and ciphers in use and so the intelligence that Bletchley Park produced sometimes you can't be completely sure whether it comes out of Enigma messages or something else but um, we're reasonably sure that it made a contribution to the Battle of Britain um, so um, uh 
Air Marshal Dowding knew that it was safe to commit his uh, squadrons of fighters to the combat with the Luftwaffe, even when it might have seemed imprudent to do so, because he had a fairly good picture of Luftwaffe strength based on uh, decoded messages. In the battles in North Africa, uh, Montgomery's um, ability to understand Rommel's supply situation was almost entirely based on broken Enigma messages. He had a very, very good picture of uh, uh, exactly how weak Rommel was, and that obviously was a very important piece of intelligence helping him in uh, his battle. Um, uh, the war at sea, the um, uh, the Battle of the Atlantic, where Britain was entirely dependent on the convoys coming across from America, uh, that was a terrible conflict of to and fro, where from time to time the Germans were reading British uh, encrypted messages, so they knew exactly where the convoys were at times when the British could not read German naval enigma. Um, and then the balance shifted dramatically in 1943 when the British changed their codes so the Germans couldn't read British codes anymore, so the Germans didn't know where the convoys were at just at the same time that the British began to read naval enigma again and knew where the U-boats were so a real shift in the balance of uh, balance of power in the Atlantic so um, yeah I think in all yeah, and you can find other examples as well but uh, you know that, that that's probably enough well, you've certainly convinced me, and I think there's a marvellous sort of um, serendipity to life, which in this case means that you're here in July 2019, and we've just discovered that Alan Turing is on our £50 note. Do you think he would have been pleased about that? Would he have expected to see more people on there? Um, how would he have reacted? I think, think he would probably have been quite appalled, frankly. <laughs> um, uh, he wasn't... He wasn't um, one for blowing his own trumpet and I think all the publicity and uh, hoo-ha about him and his achievements would um, have uh, uh, probably um, sort of both embarrassed and probably uh, disgusted him but um, I, I think one thing about the £50 note though is, is which is quite interesting um, the Bank of England decided that they were not going to major on the uh, Enigma and Bletchley Park story for the imagery they've created uh, for the £50 note. Uh, and I think that's quite interesting because what they decided they wanted to do was to look at um, Alan Turing as a, uh, a computer pioneer. And so all the imagery is around what he was actually more famous for in his own lifetime, which is the development of the first computing machines um, in Britain and of course Alan Turing was famous in his lifetime for having laid down the theoretical concept of a programmable computer in 1936 and he obviously wasn't in the least bit famous for what happened at Bletchley Park because that was still a still a state secret. So conjuring up the story behind the story is always a marvellous thing to do and there are other stories that people have taken from Bletchley Park that perhaps weren't apparent at the time. One that we talk about quite often here 
is in relation to diversity and the role that women can play in relation to computing because there is this famous trope that in the last 20 years um, women have run away from uh, STEM subjects as fast as they can. Although I had a speaker here recently, Patricia Lewis from Chatham House, um, who is involved in nuclear disarmament, who explained that in her day when she was doing a science degree, 50% of the um, graduates were women. So do you want, would you say a little bit about um, the role of women at, at, at Bletchley Park? Yeah, I mean, we have to remember that the 1930s and 1940s have very different cultural mores and there were very, there were very different attitudes to what roles were appropriate for women to carry out then, ones which would probably um, not fit terribly well with modern, modern thinking. Um, and, and this has kind of influenced the way that we've thought about Bletchley Park for, for many years. So we can begin with a statistic, which is that um, well over half, I mean, we're talking 60, 70 percent, depends on when exactly you look at it, but well over half the staff at Bletchley Park and its outstations were women. Most of those women were in fairly subordinate um, roles doing things like uh, minding machines um, and uh, doing uh, decoding work, which means that they sit at a big machine, again, a bit like a typewriter, and uh, type in cipher text and, uh, and then watch for the printed output which hopefully is deciphered to uh, come out which is a you know i mean as you can imagine that's a very boring and uh, dull job um so lots of women doing these doing these tedious things so we've tended to think of bletchley park as being oh the men's jobs were the clever ones and the women's jobs were the menial ones uh, and that's not completely wrong but what it does do is it obscures the fact that quite a few of the code-breaking jobs and the intelligence analysis jobs and the translation and translation is non-trivial when you're talking about very technical stuff that's in German abbreviations and military jargon so translation is as much a role of interpretation as just sort of turning one language into another um, these jobs were done by women as well as men and the problem has been that um, because of the genderized way that jobs were described in the 1930s and 1940s, code breaking had to be a man's job and therefore men doing code breaking were called code breakers. Women doing code breaking couldn't be called code breakers because code breaking was a man's job. So they had to be called something else. And so they were called translators or clerical staff. And so we've tended to look at the records and say, oh, look, all the women were doing clerical jobs and all the men were doing code breaking jobs. And that's while that's not untrue, it's also not true either. You have to look behind the labels to work out what people were actually doing. And that comes through from what they talk about when they describe their jobs. And uh, um, we know that there were plenty of women of the professor type as well as men of the professor type doing high grade jobs at Bletchley Park. It wasn't 50-50, but there were plenty of them. And talking then of Clifford Chance connections, which you weren't, but I we have a connection, Dermot. We also have a connection to one of the women who worked at Bletchley Park through Isabel um, Hessel-Tiltman. 
who works here. Do you want to say a little bit about her yes. forebear? Well, this is this is very interesting because I've known Isabel for many years and um, I'm now ashamed that I failed to put two and two together and realise that um, uh, somebody called Isabel Hessel Tiltman ought to be related to somebody called John Hessel Tiltman. John Hessel Tiltman was probably Britain's greatest code breaker. Alan Turing was absolutely not Britain's greatest codebreaker. He was a great mathematician who found himself in a codebreaking role. John Tiltman had been breaking codes since the early 1920s and carried on doing so until his late late 70s. Um, GCHQ wouldn't let him retire, and then when eventually they did let him retire, he was snapped up by the NSA, who then wouldn't let him retire. So this is why he carried on for like forever. Uh, he broke everything. He broke Russian stuff, he broke Japanese stuff, he broke German stuff, he broke the most complicated systems you can imagine. And what's more, he invented codes and cipher systems that were used by the British services during World War II, and they were used securely and the Germans never broke them. So John Tiltman is an amazing character. He's very, very, uh, very, very few people have heard of him. Very little is known about him. But that's absolutely classic for somebody who's in the secret intelligence service. You're not supposed to know about these guys. But uh, no, he, he's he's truly he's truly amazing. And um, it's been quite remarkable to discover that Isabel is really rather closely related to him. <laughs> <laughs> and just talking about under recognition, and as we coming to the close of this fascinating conversation. I wondered if you might tell me what happened to um, Marion Rievsky and the other Poles after the war. Were they richly rewarded and recognised for the work that they'd done? Nobody who is in secret intelligence ever gets richly or publicly rewarded because that might tell somebody something that you really didn't want them to know. So, um, unfortunately, no. Um, some things are very peculiar and very unjust. Um, Marian Rievsky was one of the Poles who escaped to Britain uh, in 1943. And um, he, uh, again, after a lot of sort of uh, agonising and heart-wrenching, decided to go back to Poland where his family was after the war. Very dangerous thing for him to do because as well as breaking German codes, he'd also been breaking Russian codes. And you can imagine that with the Soviets closely supervising the communist government in Poland, this was not uh, an easy thing. Rievsky spent the next 10 years of his life being investigated by the Polish secret police, who were very interested to know what he'd been doing during World War Two, But somehow he escaped through all that they didn't manage to pin anything on him um, but it meant that he had to keep well below the radar taking very boring jobs and so that's quite the opposite of being recognized in any way uh, by contrast Henrik Zagowski who had worked with him worked with Rievsky closely throughout the 1930s also escaped to Britain they escaped together and he stayed here. I mean, he fell in love with a British girl and became a mathematics professor, which is a sort of much more positive story. Um, but there's an irony in this because the academic institution at which he lectured, uh, which eventually merged into what's now the University of Surrey, the University of Surrey 
they've got a huge statue of a codebreaker in their grounds. So you might have thought that they would wish to honour their own alumnus who was famous for breaking the Enigma code uh, in the 1930s. No, the statue is of Alan Turing, who had nothing to do with the University of Surrey, whatever. And I find that sort of, you know, and that's classic, that uh, kind of Alan Turing, who really wasn't a code breaker, though he was involved in the Enigma uh, business at Bletchley Park gets a statue at a university where the person who really did it um, should have a statue but doesn't. That's, um, that's very bizarre. So I was trying to think of parallels from the past <laughs> for today and I'm thinking that fame is never fair. No, it's, it's not. <laughs> neither, neither now nor before. However, I'm delighted that you um, were able to present to us um, an insight into history and an insight into how much more complicated the story of life is, how it's interwoven, how people need to cooperate, how they nearly foil each other in such an erudite and insightful way. Thank you so much, Dermot. If you want to read more about um, what Dermot's been speaking about, he has his new book, X, Y and Z, out, and he's also um, got an acclaimed um, biography of his famous uncle, Alan, um, called Prof. Um, so thank you so much, Dermot, for coming and speaking to us today. And if you enjoyed that, you may be interested in listening to some of our other podcasts on cliffordchance.com or for more information on business topics such as fintech, Brexit and global trade, have a look at our thought leadership pages and online hubs, Talking Tech and our Brexit hub. You've been listening to the Clifford Chance podcast. Please stay tuned for more coming soon to cliffordchance.com. Thank you.